0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Podcast for a Just World. Uh, my name is Tracy howis and I'm joined by the, my co-host, uh, Velda Love. And we are looking towards Holy Week already and looking at um, the 19th chapter of Luke and what I, what I refer to as um, a really well-planned liturgical direct action. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. As a as a,
1: a believer that we serve a very radical Jesus, uh, one who is deeply concerned about people, about people's stories, about the liberation of women, about looking at one another, and especially looking into the eyes of those whose complexion
0: and com- uh, complicity is all tied together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's this playfulness uh, as well as a powerful critique and call out of those power structures that are just reaping violence on people. And when we, in our conversations, I would say race is one of those things, a power construct that reaps violence on people. And we've been speaking about how different people groups um, root their identity in cultural narrative. And now we come to this panel and we are speaking to people of European descent. We've got a white folks panel, right? (laughs) Yes, we do. (laughs) And this is such an important conversation to have because whiteness, rooting our identity in race, it also erases those cultural narratives for people who have access to power and privilege. Mm -hmm. Uh, It perverts those. It diminishes our own humanity. And so it's... It's part of the work to um, divest from those violent systems, Mm -hmm. um, but also the humble and painful work of uh, repentance and restoration of identity. Yes, Yes.
1: this is um, an important dialogue
0: because it is
1: asking people to self-identify where their people come from. That's right. That there's so much to a story around being European, or being uh, an Askenazi Jew, or being someone of German heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, it asks for an authentic, restorative narrative of one's roots, mm-hmm. of how one's people group came to be, mm-hmm. and how that people group made a choice or was forced to come into a new land. Mm -hmm. And so hearing these uh, stories today, I think give us a complexity, but yet a clarity around how we deconstruct this notion of race, categorizing people, as well as deconstructing and
0: demythologizing
1: the myth of whiteness.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I... uh, I appreciate you saying that. It's right out of white supremacist playbooks, actually, when you hear, oh, I have pride in white culture. Mm-hmm. White culture is a, is a misnomer, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, because the construct of race was something that's, that was false created to maintain power, create power, take it away. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in our context, in the United States, it's also deeply entwined with the nation-state mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that they're... In, it also erases what actually is culture mm-hmm. um, and in those places and people groups that you've mentioned. And so even differentiating... You know, I do say, oh, I'm, I'm white sometimes. But when I say that, I'm acknowledging I have I have access to that power and privilege that came from that white supremacy and that construct of race. Right. But what is uh, true, what is more true, is to say I'm a person of European, Southeast Asian descent, and um, I was socialized white, mm-hmm. and politically I'm assigned that. You know, we live in this where we don't have you don't have a choice that you're politically you're black. That's how you know the outside mm-hmm. forces will identify you, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I. Um, So I acknowledge that and I operate from that place because when we don't acknowledge that too, then that power can end up um, uh, reinforcing violence of systems. But the hope is that we can see together, we can learn from one another, right? Yes. And I'm learning so much, and so I'm really excited for this conversation. Yes, yes. This
1: conversation is rich uh, both for those who haven't even learned about where they come from. Mm. And it's rich to hold each other accountable in the space of hope uh, and, and, and looking at places of justice and injustice. And then even in our relationship, how we build that solidarity and to hold each other accountable when we continue to uh, not see, mm. right? Yeah. And so to be honest with that and also to make space Mm -hmm. Um, for the confession, for the lament, and for the restoration. And so that's what relationships should do. And I love Jesus um, in this moment um, because there is a confrontation. Go get it, bring it to me, tell them I need it. And then when we get to this Pharisees, I said what I said. I still want to people to get it. And I still need it. And so I think in this moment, we we need to hear the authenticity of voices um, that have been constructed white
0: and, Mm. and allow them to tell their stories. All right. Well, let's get started. Welcome to Podcast for a Just World.
1: 19, verse 28 through 40. After he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter in it, you will find tied there a cult that has never been written. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say this The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them, and they were untying the coat. Its owners asked them, Why are you untying the coat? They said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that had been seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out.
0: Welcome to Podcast for a Just World. I'm your host, Tracy Howe-Whispelway, and uh, so excited to um, be having this conversation with our guests Uh, this afternoon. Um, Joining me as the co-host of this Lenten series, Sacred Conversations to End Racism, is the Reverend Dr. Velda Love. Hey, Velda.
1: Hey, Tracy. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Good, good. I'm excited to be joining you again for this Lenten series of Sacred Conversations to End Racism and listening to our guest talk about cultural narratives and identity.
0: Awesome. So last year, our series was really uh, aligning with phase one of the restorative justice curriculum, and we spoke about the myth and construct of race and uh, how that played out in our world, especially in uh, contemporary identity, our guests tend to be people of African descent, and then a few of people of European descent. But this season, we're moving into a different, um, a, a different important uh, area and aspect of identity construction. And you're using the word cultural narrative. So, can you speak a little bit more about uh, this series and how it was designed? Yes, this
1: year we are looking at within the curriculum itself and ways in which we are moving focus on not neurocentric or Western identity, but we're looking more at cultural narratives as the way that we are um, not looking at just marginalized voices, but those we call normalized voices. Cultural narratives are normal. They're normative. They're part of our society, they are part of the church, they're part of our history, they're part of our ancestry. And so we really want to begin to hear from those who have been marginalized, how their histories, their ancestry and their identity has been uh, negated or neglected or erased because of Western cultural colonial narratives. So what we are doing is we're moving Uh, Cultural narratives that are non European into the center or the focus this year. And so that's why we are having this particular conversation with our guest.
0: And that's really interesting, though, because our panel today is people of European descent. Uh, And certainly, colonialism does violence to um, those who are subjected by it, but it also um, does violence to. Uh, the people who have access to the power and privilege, and the reconstruction and the rooting our identities in those cultural narratives and truer places, um, can be uh, perhaps more challenging um, than those who uh, are are closer or raised in closer proximity to to um, cultural narratives that that come from legacies of of family and ancestry and such. So, where this is a really important conversation we're having. And uh, so would you introduce our our panelists, our conversation partners for today?
1: Yes, I'm um, really excited to introduce uh, Seth Wispelway of Restoration Village Arts in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, Seth is a grassroots organizer, educator, and nonprofit consultant and pastor. And at Restoration Village Arts, He oversees operations of the organization and guides strategic planning, communications, and growth of the mission and goals. Seth's career includes years of public policy advocacy and mobilizing communities of faith and conscience with leading uh, NGOs and human rights organizations. Seth is an ordained minister with the United Church of Christ And holds uh, degrees from the University of Virginia and a master's in pastoral ministry from Boston College. Um, Seth has been integral, uh, and I find that the integration of both Seth's work and his involvement in uh, the Charlottesville uprising last year is an opportunity for Seth to really begin to dig deeply into how. He navigated um, being with pastors with different cultural narratives as they defended and were active in a holding back the alt-right and, um, and the disruption that was caused in the city. So welcome, Seth. Um, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Elaine Robinson. Dr. Elaine Robinson is a professor of Methodist Studies and Christian Theology at St. Paul's School of Theology in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And uh, Elaine has been important and continues to be important. I was introduced to Elaine first Uh, through her book, Race and Theology. And Elaine's work became very important for training facilitators for Sacred Conversations to End Racism because of her use of Black liberation, womanist, Latinx, and cultural narratives. And so that attracted me because uh, generally when you have someone who is a scholar and a pastor um, and putting uh, the use of people of culture, color, into their works means that they have spent time integrating what they've been reading, what they've been learning. And so her voice becomes very important uh, in this moment and how she is using uh, those, uh, those theologians, those scholars, those voices to educate students and to move forward cultural narratives. So welcome, Elaine. Our other guest is Phil Snyder, and Phil is pastor of Brentwood Christian Church of Disciples of Christ in Springfield, Missouri. Um, Phil is an award-winning writer, activist, and public theologian, pastor, and teacher who served as the senior minister, serves as the senior minister of Brentwood Brentwood Christian Church. He is best known for his uh, speech on equal rights for LGBTQ people, And books, Preaching as Resistance, Justice Calls, I'm sorry, Preaching as Resistance, Voices of Hope, Justice, and Solidarity, which is a culmination of diverse voices and people from diverse cultural backgrounds that are really speaking prophetically into this moment, challenging uh, both the empire, the U.S. government, and ways in which resistance is exceedingly, extremely important in predominantly white churches, but for the Christian church in general. And so, again, I met Phil through his work. We're also using this in Sacred Conversations to End Racism, because the United Church of Christ has predominantly white churches, but I am hopeful that uh, all of the work that is being done through this particular study guide and curriculum is impactful for how the church moves forward understanding its role as dismantling racism and white supremacy and especially white christian supremacy and so phil's book um, and his work and the ways in which he is engaging his own congregation becomes very important so welcome phil
0: it's so good to have you all with us thank you so much for uh taking the time to come together Uh, well, Dr. Ro- Dr. Robinson, uh, Dr. Snyder, Reverend Seth, how should I address you all? And as you answer that, um, why don't you also tell us uh, about your, your current um, setting and location, like where are you actually talking to us from on this day uh, and um, your, your current kind of, you know, what, what's on your plate? What are you thinking about right now?
2: Okay, uh, I'm in Oklahoma City. I am uh, both professor of theology at St. Paul School of Theology, and I'm the co-pastor of uh, Church Revitalization as a Multi-Ethnic Congregation. So I am always working at the intersections of both the theory and theology, and then the practice. And of course, the practice itself always raises questions for the theology. Uh, When you're engaging with real people, I think that's where uh, the reality of your theology or your theory comes to light. Well, I uh, co-pastor with two African-Americans in what has been a predominantly white, though not completely white, congregation. And so that in itself has been a real challenge to uh, repeatedly say we're co-pastors. I'm not the senior.
3: All right. Well, uh, I am Phil Snyder, and uh, I am currently sitting in my Missouri State University office. Uh, and um, uh, I just got done teaching a course on uh, paths of world religion. So so part of my uh, time here is, uh, in Springfield is related to church work, and part of it is related to uh, teaching at Missouri State.
4: This is Seth Wispelway from Charlottesville, Virginia, he, him, and I... We are in our home office. Uh, Velda, you referenced the work I've been involved in um, related to what turned our town into a hashtag almost exactly 18 months ago. And since that time, uh, which brought out of me and so many others here in Charlottesville a lot of work we felt called to and a lot of past experience and and skills and Clear mission. Uh, I've been basically involved full time in working alongside and coming alongside those who continue to pick up the pieces uh, from that uh, traumatic weekend, uh, while also spending time uh, with those taking those pieces and, and building um, new and bold and and beautiful things in our community that hopefully can. Uh, tell a new story about who we are called to be as communities, as people of faith and conscience in um, building a city, state, and world that is not defined and governed by a white colonial Christian culture.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a good segue, isn't it, Velda? (laughs) (laughs)
1: It's excellent segue. Absolutely. And our audience will, um, um, they will notice that this is a a European descent group and we are interested in those narratives because what we want to do is make sure that identities, especially from a Christian perspective, are sitting around, uh, the, the circle and that God occupies the center. And so restorative justice means how do we listen to um, these voices? And so I want us to begin, uh, I want you all to begin to engage in conversations. Um, and so one of the ways in which you will reflect together um, is in what ways has Western or North American white colonial culture shaped your identity?
0: And I think alongside alongside that, because we know, and part of why we um, wanted your voices included in this series is uh, those those tools and methods and ways that have opened for you to decolonize yourself and and start to uh, claim more of your ancestral cultural uh, identities.
2: So let me begin and just uh, throw something out here about uh, white cultural identities. Uh, My original name from birth was a very Jewish name. My father was Jewish. But at uh, the age of seven or eight, my family changed the family name to Anglicize it. And uh, looking back on that later in life, I realized it was a moment of me really becoming white Because at that moment, I could live into the cultural narratives that existed in a way that prior to that I couldn't because the name was so obviously Jewish. And so this idea of becoming white, we do it even today in our society. Uh, And I think it's important for us to realize that it is something that people uh, strive after and find ways to live in because it uh we we receive certain privileges by doing that
3: yeah um you know i grew up uh without an awareness of the ideology which is part of the power of the ideology uh and so you know whiteness to me i assumed was just a normative concept by which all things are measured and, you know, I, I think back on um, my upbringing. Uh, I think about, you know, family life uh, in the Ozarks. I think about churches I attended. I, I think about, you know, educational institutions. And what was always presented to me um, was white culture. And I uh, understood that as normative culture uh, without giving any thought to to the powerful ideology uh, in, in which I was being immersed. And And so it wasn't until much later in life. Uh, I began to to recognize the power of hidden ideology uh, that uh, is there. Uh, you know, like, like like you know, water to a fish, even though you may not recognize it. Because uh, certainly, uh, I did not. Uh,
0: thank you. That's a really that's really powerfully said. Like growing up without an awareness of the ideology, which is part of the power of the ideology. I want. I think it's important to state though, as we speak about white culture, which is actually a, um, a talking point of white supremacists and something that we immediately recognize, oh, there's something highly problematic. If someone is talking about, for example, oh, why don't you have pride in white culture, which is, a, you know, again, a talking point of white supremacists. Uh, that in speaking about this, we also are very much speaking about um Uh, United States national colonial narrative. So in our context uh, quote unquote white culture is uh, completely enmeshed in The spiritualities, that is the way that we understand our connections to one another uh, locally and globally in the nation state. So, um, Elaine, I really appreciated you talking about uh, becoming white, and even people that have access to that power and privilege who walk and present politically as white. Um, yeah, we do become that. Um, and that requires an erasure of our cultural identity. And if our conscience becomes raised, then the work of restoring that can be so isolating and painful um, and hard, and and uh, but also so life-giving and necessary. And I also have Jewish ancestry, and I have Southeast Asian ancestry, and I have European ancestry, specific English, French, German ancestry; these very specific things, and that was all erased for me, um, and I was just told that I was white. And it's only been in the last number of years that I have started to change my language about that. So, in that, um, with that, what kind of uh, we can continue the, in this vein? Um, what tools do you have to start to recognize? these forces, these colonial ideologies, and kind of decolonize yourself as a person who, has, who benefits from the ideology, who has access to the power and privilege.
4: Well, this is Seth, and as someone who had his identity completely shaped by Western slash North American white Christian colonial culture, uh, the process of of decentering and decolonizing myself and the whole kind of way of living around me is and has been a, a very tenuous new growth thing because it has has required essentially a dismantling and deconstruction of the whole story I was given um, and or positioned into by simple virtue of the fact of being born a cis hetero white man in the United States of America. My own background is 100% European, uh, 25% of that from the UK and the rest from uh, Northern Europe, specifically the Netherlands, and a small corner of the Netherlands called Friesland on the border with Germany. So those who are in the know will recognize Wispelway as a Frisian name, a, a blue-collar outlet um, of, of farmers and so on. And both sides of my family. Uh, grew up in the Dutch Christian Reformed Church. Dutch Calvinism ran strong and so found themselves um, immigrating or positioned into tight-knit communities that presupposed uh, Dutch Reformed uh, culture and identity. I know all these jokes, you might be a Dutch Calvinist if you need two volume phone books, A through U and V through Z and that sort of thing. You didn't have a choice where you were going to college if you were going to college. Um, So both my parents met at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, uh, Jerusalem, uh, so to speak. And even now, uh, both of my own parents are the only uh, siblings from their families, um, the only children from their families who uh, do not live in those originating pockets um, in the Midwest and northern New Jersey. And so, decentering that has been a scary and lonely process in a lot of ways. It's happened in phases. I grew up in a conservative faith tradition that presupposed its own capital T truth and kind of colonial privilege theology on the world. And so I often kind of look back now, and this will be an ongoing process for life. But in the ways I first intellectually deconstructed that worldview, but then became obsessed with becoming the right kind of. So I was still kind of governed by a centering truth, um, and then emotionally, and then spiritually, had that broken down over the past uh, 15 years. From that point, um, time as a hospital chaplain in a city hospital sitting with folks uh, my own age who were actively dying simply for lack of being me uh, played a large part in that. Um, So my methods, so to speak, I mean, I I hesitate to call them mine because it also feels like it centers myself. I would just say I found myself relationship adjacent uh, to those who do not uh, carry my privilege and it was those relationships that called my own bluff and, and called the bluff of the claims I made about who Jesus is in the world and um, what I hope for all people in the world that gave me a choice. And um, prayerfully and blessedly, I've, I've started to choose to co- uh, come alongside and follow those who don't carry that privilege.
1: Thank you, Seth. That is uh, an important narrative and and your story. And part of what this particular Lenten series uh, raises for us is that how do we uh, effectively remove um, that language of white culture? Because The Sacred Conversations to End Racism, if we're looking at racism, uh, says that I must self-identify for my ancestral roots in order for us as Christians, not to center ourselves uh, both above uh, others uh, because God did not create race. Uh, Those are human categorizations, Uh, but ways in which we begin to think about how we teach preach and live into a restorative justice model or strategy where we begin to name that ancestral. I'm European this. As a woman of African descent, I can say that my ancestors are from Africa and that I was born in America, but I describe African first because that's where my people were enslaved. And then brought to the Americas. So, talk a little bit amongst yourselves about how to decenter that language and decenter this culturalness of whiteness, since it is a myth.
2: Well, I, I want to take one step back uh, because I know that people of faith, uh, you know, uh, Phil, you were talking about the the normative white culture that you grew up in, but. Most of the time, uh, so many of the people who identify as white don't even recognize that there is a culture. It is so normative that it is an invisible uh, presence. Everyone else has a culture but there is really no such thing as white culture. And so the first thing that has to happen is an awareness that there is in fact, uh, cultural realities that surround uh, white Americans. And many of these cultural realities are things that we have been uh, uh, enculturated into, indoctrinated into uh, that become our sources of privilege. So the first thing, the very first thing we have to do is make aware that there are cultural characteristics of white persons uh, and white communities of faith actually have a culture. Uh, This myth that uh, we can love everyone who walks in the door equally uh, demonstrates that we are completely unaware that there really is a culture at work that may not fit uh, with someone else who walks in and, and I'll, uh, cede to someone else to jump in here.
0: I, I also am wondering, um, uh, Phil, if this is resonating the work of decentering um, whiteness and, uh, decolonizing. Uh, I imagine that there's quite a few parallels in, um, deconstructing privilege and what you've, uh, the work that you're doing. Um, so, any of these different kinds of language, or these these different rubric rubrics, please feel free to engage. You know, I think about um, uh, part of, uh, I guess, a vision of decentering, decolonizing, deconstructing. For me, is to realize that this power and privilege which I have access to is the fruit of something I should be actively seeking to uh, dismantle if we are to make an equitable and, and just society. So I think, for me, uh, part of the methodology is is just constantly recognizing that. And um, even though we can't um, completely disentangle ourselves from that power and privilege, we can very intentionally seek to operate out of places of solidarity instead of that power and privilege, and then work alongside to dismantle it. Uh, Because then we find ourselves in community and sustained by community and not the power and privilege. Uh, And so that's a constant uh, work that I'm doing as I move through this world.
3: Yeah. Um, I really appreciate the uh, attentiveness to language that uh, is being uh, expressed here and the power of, of how language doesn't just describe our world, but shapes our world. Um, and I, I, I think about um, the context of, of this conversation uh, in relationship to liturgical settings and the way that, that language shapes our, our worlds in liturgical settings. Um, you know, the Disciples of Christ uh, as a um, denomination— uh, has tended to be pretty uh, attentive to trying to use inclusive language in worship, for example, to, to try to uh, uh, de-center or deconstruct patriarchal norms. Um, and, and so uh, I, I have a lot of colleagues, a lot of friends, there are a lot of churches uh, in, in which our, our language about God is um, uh, tr- tries to be um, uh, uh, not uh, uh, related to patriarchal norms for uh, imagining God. Um, and, and something that, that we don't give near as much attention to, though, is, is the, the power of our language in relationship uh, to, to, to images and metaphors uh, in terms of, of uh, dark, light, black, uh, white. Um, and, you know, liturgical space helps people order and frame their world. And, and so it's important for me uh, as a pastor uh, to, to give careful attention to the way language is functioning in those contexts.
0: Thank you for that. I'm actually going to um, open us into another space. We'll continue engaging all of these uh, important um, ideas, and but I want to pose uh, something to Velda. So Velda's background is in um, African-based pedagogy, and so uh, what you're what you're saying, you know, is very much resonating. From what I've learned from you, Velda. Um, that all of these metaphors and their implications that Phil just noted, those come from that Western construct. Um, And so if we're not aware of that, and and several of us have talked about awareness and Elaine, what you said, you know, you can't, this myth that we can just say welcome all without being unaware of difference um, is really important. And so um, you know, uh, Velda, a lot of your work I've seen you, um, you know, bring African-based pedagogy to life in things like liturgy uh, and in this work. Um, but for the rest of us, what, is, what does it mean to start rooting our identity in, in uh, life-giving, liberative, cultural places, as opposed to um, politically constructed colonial tools,
1: Thank you, Tracy, great question. Um, That means that we, um, and for those who don't do this work, means that you're expanding your reading, you're expanding your visuals, you're expanding your conversations. Um, so African-centered pedagogy for me became passion because I'm African-centered, um, and so my background, my spirituality, my theology, my womanism, so my body, my my visual, uh, everything about me is African-centered um, because I'm a woman of African descent. And so I spent um, 20 plus years reading, digging, researching, and being in conversations with theologians and activists and scholars and my. Family Family about what it meant to be Black, what it meant to be African-centered, and what it meant to change language that keeps uh, my people enslaved. Uh, slave is constructed. And so when I talk about the enslaved, I'm talking about deconstructing what white or Europeans meant, that perpetual state of thinking you are inferior. And so in this moment, I challenge colleagues who are of European descent um, and Latinx descent to dig deeply both into their own ancestral heritage, but also if we're going to change the narrative and do deconstructing and decolonizing work, you have to read more broadly. And so one of the spaces, you have to talk more broadly, you have to look at Jesus's lineage Uh, where he was born. He is not European. Europeans don't show up until the New Testament. And so when we begin to uh, construct language around biblical text, we're looking at texts that come out of narratives on the continent of Africa and the Mediterranean. And um, so if we start there and we begin to imagine uh, the dark skin, the woolly skin, hair, the Palestinian is um, eating um, and talking to and the trading that happens between Africa and the Mediterranean and Palestine, then we have a richer, deeper conversation about our biblical narrative and our historical narrative. And so I have students look at Africa's great civilization um, that is narrated by Henry Louis Gates because we are African people. And what happens in some of this work is that archeologists and anthropologists and all of these ologists wanted to erase blackness out of our conversations and our history. So I'm challenging those who are sitting in predominantly Eurocentric spaces to do the work of looking at uh, civilizations that are older than the United States of America.
0: I hear in this, and I've heard in other people, a call, number one, to locate yourself in a way that's liberative and truthful, not out of the construct, and number two, to be specific, really specific, and I want to hear more about what that... Um, what, ramif- what uh, ramifications that might have for the way that we live. I can I confess that, you know, we hear Velda speak and she knows who she is and she's done a lot of work. And I as a person healing from uh, white supremacy and I as a person of European descent, um, I don't have those family, you know, connections. I cannot, uh, you know... <laughs> surround myself, you know, around people of Southeast Asian and and French and European and be like, what does this mean? Um, it, it feels a little bit more like that is actually the call for us right now of people of European descent, that we start building this community. And uh, it's hopeful, but also, um, uh, yeah, I think a little bit lonely. I want to just add a uh, a really practical um, a really practical tool. And I heard, you know when Seth introduced himself, he said, "I'm Seth, he him." And people have started to do that. and we on this podcast um, often ask people to give their pronouns and ancestry, um, partly to decenter what has been normalized. Uh, I can introduce myself as a person from Charlottesville, Virginia, or I can say I'm I am living in a land now called Charlottesville, Virginia, and those just little ways that we decenter ourselves help us to live into um, a different narrative that I I don't honestly see completely, but I'm finding community and I'm finding ways um, forward. There's there's things opening.
4: It, and I think those little tweaks, they're conversation starters. Uh, they can open up sacred conversation. They can open up the real challenge. As you said, Velda, I mean, it was everyone has said we live in a country that is propped up by the white male power structure and gaze, and therefore is designed to reward white male power and gaze in this like kind of endless feedback loop. And so it's always very telling, whether it's on Twitter or from the pulpit or everywhere in between, that the slightest tweak in language will kind of cause eyebrows to go up. I mean, we had a uh, the largest white supremacist gathering in how many decades in Charlottesville, ostensibly over the removal of a decades-old Jim Crow era uh, idol uh, to white supremacy. And I think A large part of that is due to what you said earlier, Elaine, um, in terms of how uh, uh, difference uh, for white folks. We're we're also acculturated to treat every day as a groundhog day. Um, And so even those of us infused with the story of grace um, are also operating on a daily amnesia because of, I think, this grace narrative that says like, well, we're all equal. We're all moving forward on some sort of like passive train towards equality. And that only serves to dissolve difference and and flatten need and, and not shift perspective in, in the ways we need to. And that was certainly a problem we ran into with a whole bunch of white male pastors here in Charlottesville when I was asked, uh, when I asked, how can I, with my built-in privilege and equity come alongside these efforts to confront uh, the white supremacists who are coming, the women of color who were part of our cohort and, and who I said I wanted to be accountable to said, you go talk to the other white men behind the scenes and you ask them to show up. We need uh, bodies. So to use a very physical, literal example, and what was revealed uh, through that process is that a lot of them had their a most potent identity in their whiteness and their maleness, not their, their Christian thing, because they had all range of reasons and excuses uh, to ignore it, to elide it, to say that confronting it was violence. All very telling uh, pastors who 51 weeks out of the year be quoting King uh, when it, the stakes couldn't have been higher sounded exactly like the eight Alabama clergymen uh, that King was responding to in a Birmingham jail. And I could say so much more about that, but just in reflecting with what y'all are saying, it, it's it's hard. I've got different anecdotes of just the slightest tweaks setting off fellow white men. Some I'm meeting for the first time who almost try to fight me. And then uh, dear friends of mine I've known for two decades who all of a sudden think I'm, quote unquote, um, not hanging out with them because they're white. And I said, what? Um, and if that's not a self-fulfilling prophecy, I don't know what is. Believing that. <laughs>
2: Tracy. Can I say something here about white supremacy? And that is that I think a a large number of white people think white supremacy is fringe groups. A lot of white people think the KKK is what white supremacy is all about. I heard James Cone going one-on-one with a white scholar at a, a Uh, religious studies conference, because the the scholar kept saying, oh, I've dealt with the KKK. And of course, Dr. Cohn was trying to say, no, white supremacy is a system that exists that privileges and gives benefits to those who can pass as white. And so I want to make sure people who are listening aren't saying, well, I'm not a white supremacist. I don't participate in the KKK. No, you don't. However, there is a larger structure that exists in this country that until we can begin to dismantle that, it will continue to support these kinds of colonial constructions that actually erase uh, our identity as white people. All we know is basically these constructed white identities and until we recognize more broadly what white supremacy is, we're not going to be able to take those kinds of steps back, Velda, where we can say, you know, gee, I'm a Latvian by origin. What is that?
1: Right, right. And that's the hard work. And so, you know, in, in that cultural work uh, is that. It is work. But also white Christian supremacy is, is very much... Um, rooted in the structures around white supremacy, which is that larger political uh, narrative of white hetero male domination. And so when we look at the white church, we're also looking at a Western supremacist model. And I'm not sure people are tapping into that as well.
0: I think it's important to maybe uh, explain to explain this a little bit more or to dialogue to help our listeners understand, um, certainly, you know, white supremacy. Okay. I've got, but what is Christian supremacy?
4: Kissing cousins with white supremacy. <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's part and parcel uh, with what Elaine was just saying that white supremacy is baked into the DNA of our country, the United States, and in, in so many ways, if not the way is a white patriarchal colonialist project uh, that then calls itself a Christian nation. And I'm not talking about getting rid of freedom of religion, but when you provide tax-exempt status and confer that moniker on ourselves in a country that, you know, kind of kneels at the altar of white supremacy and patriarchy, those are going to get fused really quick. And it also numbs those who would call themselves Christian and are compelled By the Jesus story into a very easy going along uh, with the things. It's that much harder to root around and find stakes, um, as I said earlier. And it doesn't take much. It took Colin Kaepernick, for example, the former quarterback in the National Football League, just quietly kneeling to protest uh, state violence against black and brown bodies for everyone up to um, the current president to lose their minds and. And show who they were really worshiping, um, and so and he did it uh, explicitly as a as a professing Christian, uh, and so did others like Eric Reed who joined him. Uh, so it doesn't take much. Um, Christian supremacy, are as the privileges though that accrue, I would say, uh, from calling oneself Christian. There's a lot of benefits to advancing in our society. Uh, much more if you call yourself Presbyterian than if you call yourself Muslim.
0: So what I hear is Christian supremacy is when Christianity and its institutions um, actually become a part of the system of white supremacy and colonization and not something you know that subverts those things and is a liberative force, which leads me to my next question. What forms of christianity and faith and justice building are liberative forces
1: so i i believe that um again looking at one's ancestral background because uh, african-centric people african-descended people were spiritual and rooted in some were christian uh a lot of the first Jews were of African descent, uh, Muslim descent, and so we we have to begin to think more broadly of what it means to be, not just not, it's a Christ follower, what people really don't look at, they, they use Christianity as sort of this normative narrative, right? I'm a Christian. But I think what we need to look at is we need to look at those spaces where we are invested and really going back um, to get our theology uh, unhinged from Western ideology. We need to look at the church and the edicts that were constructed to create Western white myths um, around both bodies and ideology. Um, and so we're talking about the edict that uh, came out of the Roman Church and the Protestant church that called Native peoples and indigenous peoples and African peoples heathens. That's not Christian, um, right? And so we're also um, I'm, I'm challenging and offering people also to look at resistance. Jesus resisted that model of supremacy in his own day. Uh, Jewish, Jewish, yes. But reading that text in its liberative forms, meaning I'm reading to set captives free. His inaugural sermon was about liberating people, being filled with the Spirit to go into prisons to unshackle people. Um, when Jesus, when women encounter Jesus, when when people in the Bible encounter Jesus. Jesus is talking about taking the shackles off of their minds. Legion, the Roman Empire, and when Jesus is executed, uh, that is state-sanctioned violence on his body. Um, and so the ways in which we draw the parallel between the crucifixion and lynching of black bodies or the murder of, of indigenous peoples or immigrants or people of color in general are ways in which we have to begin to look more seriously at the display of the murdered body. That is to, and, and one of the ways in which we talk about this supremacy and privilege is what are white people afraid of? <laughs> uh, I've had that conversation as well that there is a, definitely a fear out here to have whiteness dismantled. Um, and so those that for me feels constrictive and not liberative. And so I think ways in which we began to say, how uh, who are we listening to? Um, what stories are we listening to when I Uh, talk about the experience of being with my students in Ferguson, it was the women that stood vigil over Michael Brown's body. It was Black women. That's liberative um, to see the blood on the ground and to know that your friend has been executed. I imagine that some of these women that led the movement after seeing that were not perhaps Christian or churchgoers, but that liberation to begin to move people around Black Lives Matter, that's liberative. Um, And so I think those are some examples of how we restore uh, these narratives around both gospel and the ways in which we uh, remove the threat of bodies
3: and being. Um, Part of the uh, demonic power of white supremacy is uh, the way in which um, and I, I think it's appropriate that this conversation is, is taking place um, as a Lenten series uh, because there's a lot of uh, repentance that needs to be done. Um, and I, I say that as a pastor of a, a, a predominantly um, uh, white uh, uh, ancestral European church in which um, we, we will talk about the importance of, of racial justice. Black lives matter. You know, uh, sometimes I wonder if uh, our discourse is uh, a form of virtue signaling. Um, because um, uh, whenever we begin to, to really uh, do the hard work of uh, thinking about what does it mean for the fundamental power structures in our society to shift, um, uh, all of it, all of a sudden, um, uh, a lot of of those of us uh, in that congregation that share in white privilege, while we might want to see racial justice, I'm not always sure we want to let go of some of the power that we share, and and that's a, a demonic, oppressive force um, connected to white supremacy because it it it, it tells the lie that uh, uh, that the lack of liberation for all of God's people is good for some people. And um, as people of faith, uh, people following uh, in the way uh, of Jesus, um, being able to uh, listen for uh, the liberating aspects of the gospel, which brings life, and truth to our world, that means power structures might change. But it also might mean, you know, we all find life together in new and beautiful ways that uh, the myth, uh, or I should say, not the myth, that, de- that the powers of, of demonic white supremacy, they try to uh, sell us that false bill of goods.
4: Well, Velda, you asked. What are white people afraid of? And Phil, uh, I'm going to run with some of what you just said. I think white people are afraid of taking sides, I think, um, because taking sides means crossing the tape. It means standing with the body um, and with the bodies, embodying solidarity. And I think the ways white people kind of want to hold on to power And privilege out of that fear um, is by setting the terms of engagement ourselves. And so this goes for progressive folks uh, as well um, by saying, well, this is how much we can do. And we're interested in, okay, well, more bad headlines. So what more can we do? But it's not about what we can do. It's about who we must be. And, And as you mentioned out of Jesus's first sermon, Uh, In Luke, he's speaking and the gospel is being proclaimed in specific ways and saying uh, there's no should involved. There's no superego, Holy Spirit kick in the rear from on high, but is saying if you want to claim you're on board with the way of the living God, it is going to kind of manifest these ways and it's going to look like this. and So the fear of taking sides comes out of the, I think, deep down dirty secret knowledge that where our comfort resides in is a lie and that foundation can get shaky. Um, that's where the chant, you will not replace us comes from. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa no, come back here. Um, and yeah, uh, the, I believe we are created to know our why in a larger story um, and then figure out how that's going to manifest before we determine what we're going to do in the world. And for white folks like myself, why and how has already been taken care of in the United States since you have to work back on that. And it is scary as all get out because you're like, there's, there's no model necessarily for that. Um, so it costs, but it's a liberate, it's a cost that liberates or a liberation that <laughs> it's liberating cost.
0: I also would say, you know, Velda, when you shared all of the kind of liberation routes uh, and you know, I think about what keeps that alive for me or where I find it. um some of it is in you know the books and the pillars of people who came before um you've you know um give us commissioned us to have wider and deeper uh reading um people that are 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 coming from um historically marginalized. Places and to root there, but also I say this, the contemporary struggles against colonialism and white supremacy and um, Christian supremacy, I think about the indigenous movements uh, in this country and throughout Central America um, that are happening right now. Um, we have an opportunity to, uh, to see the gospel unfolding right now, right now. And uh, I do appreciate greatly what Seth um, just spoke. And I think that immediately brings things into, um, into the fore. Are we willing to, you know, since our nation state is not allowing asylum seekers to cross into the U.S. and seek asylum, are we willing with our bodies to cross this nation state border to help care for them? As we are called to, and literally shed the privilege and power that is, you know, comes from this nation state by stepping into a different nation state, just simply to be with our siblings, as we are called, um, who to recognize their humanity and their dignity, and to let it restore our humanity and dignity. I want to jump
2: in with a piece of the colonial narrative that I don't think we've really touched on and I think also relates to Velda's question about fear. And that is uh, that I often believe that we are more of a consumerist nation than we are a Christian nation. Uh, That our true God is uh, tied into the economic system, which from the founding of this nation was tied into our religion and our politics. And those economic realities are so uh, embedded in white supremacy, are so embedded in our churches. Uh, most of our churches don't know what to do with poor people. If they come in through our doors, uh, we are uncomfortable. And so part of the fear is I'm going to have to give up economic privilege.
0: Absolutely. In
2: a country where economic privilege means everything.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: Absolutely. That's where a
4: lot of that amnesia comes from because eventually someone's going to start saying the R word and...
0: Reparations, you
4: mean? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of R words on the way back to that, like redlining and, and more that people don't want to grapple with. Um, yeah. And so opportunity starts today. There was no history.
1: And, and I think the conversation around uh, reparation is is broader Uh, because it is economic, but it is also restoring um, education, it's restoring housing, it's restoring policy. Reparation for those who have been robbed, (laughs) that's our word, Um, uh, we're looking at the broader term of reparation. And so I know we attach the economic, the financial to it, but I, I believe that liberative space that we've been talking about is the full recovery, the full restoration around reparation. And that's where the conversation um, can can be inviting or scary for others, but definitely around economics, because we are driven um, by this country's lust for money. And the ways in which it is appropriated at the expense of profit over people, and so that is the way in which um, uh, this country operates. And, and so that's a real conversation that needs to happen in churches.
3: Yeah, you know, something I I, I might uh, say uh, in connection to that, um, and and something um, mentioned earlier by uh, Elaine, I believe, um, oftentimes we present that these, these struggles, uh, with our congregations. And I say, uh, we, and are within the context of a pastor serving, again, a predominantly white congregation. Um, oftentimes this is presented in, in very interpersonal senses. Like, like we think of, uh, about, uh, racial justice, uh, uh, in, in terms, uh, uh, we, we limit the terms to where we think about interpersonal exchanges regarding, you know, prejudice and bias and such. Uh, and we don't think more broadly and fully in terms of, uh, what it means to speak systemically and structurally, uh, because, um, you know, until we begin to, to, uh, Shift the conversation beyond just the individual, you know, uh it, it, and start talking about the importance of of systemic justice, structural justice, and 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 really quite comprehensive overhauls, you know, um, then we're just gonna continue, you know, it, it's it's like a, a different move in the same game when we need to be playing a different game altogether.
0: Mm, yeah, thank you.
3: A lot of times people will come up to me and, and, and like after I've done a presentation on, on preaching as resistance, or we, we, we've talked about, you know, different dynamics of, 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 preaching, uh, as it connects, uh, to trying to, to, uh, work towards, you know, solidarity, justice, you know, hope. And, 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 you know, people will say, you know, should we be, you know, pastoral or should we be prophetic, you know, and, and how, how do we engage politically, um, and, and is the gospel political? You know, things like that. And, you know, all of that comes from a, a place of privilege. You know, uh, to, to be prophetic is to be pastoral. Um, and, and whenever we uh, think that the gospel does not have uh, very, real material, very real material political implications, then we are not preaching a gospel connected to the one we proclaim uh, as Christ and 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 so to 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 not be political is to be political you know to to not engage is to sanction the status quo. and if that status quo is problematic, then there's a responsibility to engage um, and 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 with that said, um I, I go back uh, you know to the importance of of, of the decentering and deconstructing um, and and you know, most of of the theological narratives that that that, that I've been taught uh, have been very centered uh, by uh, predominantly uh, uh, European uh, colonial uh, Western theologians, and and I think about how operative a lot of uh, those theologians have been in progressive contexts, and and how. Um, a lot of the theology that emerged within the last 300 years, that is still very much a part of um, the curriculum in seminaries and divinity schools uh, emerged specifically in the service. If you know, it, it maybe wasn't spoken, but but it was used in the service of colonialism um, and um, uh, uh, oftentimes drawn on. I mean, I think, I, th- I think about, um, I I think about the way that that our our, um, country, you know, which um, emerged out of an act of of, uh, stolen land and genocide. um, A lot of the founding philosophers and theologians um, were developing theology and philosophy that was in the service of upholding those things. And whenever that continues to be, um, when when those folks continue to be the go-to sources for theology, that's just deeply problematic. And until we start reading different thinkers, and and and, until there becomes uh, opportunities to engage, um, uh, then I I, I don't think we're going to uh, move forward in constructive ways.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. So Elaine, I want to come back to uh, what you said about capitalism. Um, because something I've been exploring very much is, um, the spirituality, you know, what is the spirituality that we're talking about? Because everyone is spiritual. We're just, um, we just do it in different ways. If spirituality is those ways in which we demonstrate our relationships, So if I don't believe in God, I still have ways I'm demonstrating relationships with creation or with um, the other humans on this planet, those in close proximity to me and those far away. And capitalism is the default spirituality on which we run. It's the way that we demonstrate our relationships. And they literally devalue some humans over others, like, like literally in the actual... You know what what a life is worth on our capitalist scale, and so if we bring that into a gospel context or liberative context, I look for those things, those ways, those um, uh, the ways in which I can learn to demonstrate relationships in a life-giving, liberative way. I believe that the gospel does that, but also that that's actually how I can find the gospel unfolding in the world today. Is look for the ways that. Relationships are being demonstrated in life-giving, liberative ways with our fellow human siblings and creation. The
2: gospel is inherently relational. It is radically relational. It points us back to the beginning where the whole of creation was radically related. And when we let, as you point out, Tracy, perfectly, uh, those capitalistic notions place value on human beings, then we are not living the gospel. Uh, The gospel tells us uh, that at its essence, it is about fully human existence, abundant life, and not for some but for all. And so, again, uh, the more that our communities of faith can begin to understand that the way we value human beings in our tangible actions is going to be the real demonstration of our uh, faith in Christ.
4: That relational piece, I was compelled by what you just said, Elaine, and what Phil just said and thinking about this false dichotomy that gets propped up between the pastoral and prophetic. I, I hate when those are kind of put oppositionally, or like, which one are you called to? Because I believe if we are listening with liberative ears, with decolonized ears, uh, meaning us cis, hetero, white folks predominantly, if we're listening to those who are marginalized and cast out of the Capitalist, white, patriarchal project. Um, We will, and then choose to come alongside them. That's where new math and new relationships will be fostered and grown. They will inherently be then a threat to that project, but by bringing power and privilege and bodies and equity alongside, we start to unpack gospel specific ways and opportunities of living. Uh, that's how we framed our call in Charlottesville, um, um, and people tried to define it in other ways, but it's in writing. People are, are hurt, they're scared, they're confused, they're angry, they're hopeful, and if we can shift our perspective to hear them, those especially threatened by systemic and uh, explicit marching in the streets, white supremacy, um, and come alongside and cross that tape uh, to be with the bodies, then uh, the pastoral, I think, just appears prophetic to people because so few are doing it so far. Um, but but I also uh, prefer to think about prophetic as um, uh, a challenge and a, and a clarion call to uh, that promise of aliveness, of abundant life um, that awakens people from their numbness. Um, and we won't get to the full financial reparations until we can get folks acknowledging the fuller and true story.
0: Yeah, like a radical commitment to the pastoral in our context of violent dehumanization becomes prophetic.
4: That's right. Um, And it it can start with tweaks.
0: (laughs) Tweaks are good.
4: (laughs) Thank you.
1: Thank you. Um, so I, am just moved by the way in which we move forward. Thank you, Elaine, for all of your good work and your analysis around, um, uh, the liberation, uh, the capitalism. And I, I guess my, my parting word, uh, would be around this notion of collective memory. How do we engage in collective memory that comes out of the context of, of stories that, um, I read and stories that we can collect now that become part of collective memory, which is also gospel work. um, Because we wouldn't have the gospels had it not been for collective memory uh, and people sharing their visual, uh, their witness. And so one is collective memory. And then the other is collective narrative because out of that collective memory becomes collective narrative. And so I would hope that from this Lenten series and and ways in which we engage further that we collect those narratives so that we can really have sacred conversations. And then the last is uh, Ubuntu, shared responsibility um and i'm just always trying to have conversations with people about sharing Uh, power is not bad in itself, but it's about shared power. It's about there's more than enough. The abundance that um, some have and some don't is not abundance. It's not gospel. And so if we can begin to also incorporate this Ubuntu, the shared um, collective responsibility narrative, feeding people, uh, housing people, changing policy, and being very rooted in the prophetic. Um, and so the, the the text that came to me was that the spirit of the Lord is upon us and that uh, God is with us and that we are being empowered and anointed uh, to bring good news and that we are to go to the oppressed and to bind up the brokenhearted. We are to proclaim liberty to the captives and to release prisoners and that just prisoners beyond bars and concrete. These are prisoners who are indebted and have their minds wrapped around supremacy ideology and thinking and where their hearts are imprisoned in whiteness. And so uh, we are here to proclaim and to be prophetic. And so I'm just most grateful uh, to this conversation and the ways in which we will go forward and do this work uh, because we have them both too and we have a collective memory. So thank you very much for being with us today, for sharing your story, um, because your story becomes part of the collective narrative. Um, We are going to move forward together. We're gonna do this work together. And so I want to be encouraged, encourage you to continue to have these sacred conversations uh, beyond the Lenten season, but we are here to be prophetic and to engage so that we can really live into um, Uh, being Christ followers and uh, God-centered, big G, (laughs) as opposed to uh, the ways in which we manufacture um, our little gods. So thank you. Bless you, Tracy. As always, it is so good to work with you.
0: It's so good to work with you. Thank you so much, Seth and Elaine and Phil. Uh, Please stick with us as we continue this very important series. And remember, you can follow us on social media, Podcast for a Just World on Facebook and on SoundCloud, and you can listen to us wherever you download and listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you so much. And uh, this Lenten season, we pray that you have courage, boldness, and faithfulness stepping into these very sacred conversations. Hello to listeners of Podcast for a Just World. Did you know we're not the only ones podcasting about dismantling white supremacy and the intersections of our activism, faith, and community organizing? We encourage you to check out The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice, coordinated by our friend, the Reverend Ann Dunlap. They're celebrating their 100th episode, so now is a great time to add them to your favorite podcasts. The Word is Resistance is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud forward slash the word is resistance.